American Majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to Episode 5, The Great Awakening. To really understand the thinking of the American colonists in the days preceding the American Revolution, The Great Awakening has to be examined because of its importance in changing the American colonists' psyche and the changes brought about by the event. I think many times when people think about the Great Awakening, they have visions of Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God, or George Whitfield preaching to massive crowds in Philadelphia, both of which are vital parts of the Great Awakening. And while I'll discuss the religious aspects and nature of the Great Awakening, I also want to discuss the other changes brought about by the spiritual awakening that changed American customs and even American politics. Clinton Rossiter writes in The Sea Time of the Republic that for all its excesses, the Great Awakening was a tremendous spur to the coming of American democracy, especially social democracy. The revival spirit placed emphasis on the importance of the regenerated individual. A natural result of these new feelings of individualism and equality was the further democratization of organization and methods within the churches. More democracy in the church led in turn to more democracy in the community, and so the great historical interaction of religion and politics continued to work to liberate men from the tyranny of the past. But I state the obvious by saying that the Great Awakening did not start out with any political changes in mind. It began in the late 1730s in reaction to what many people saw as a decline in piety as the second and third generations of young people in the New England region began drifting away from the beliefs of their parents. There had been various local breakouts of revival in New England, but you can say that the Great Awakening began in earnest in 1739 when a young Anglican preacher by the name of George Whitfield landed in the colonies. For the next several years, Whitfield proceeded to travel throughout the colonies preaching series of revival sermons. His reputation as an open-air preacher preceded him. He had preached to crowds numbering 20 to 30,000 in England, and wherever he went in the colonies, he typically attracted large and somewhat raucous crowds, but not inside the churches. The clergy of the colonies at first welcomed Whitfield, and then almost immediately, most, due to theological differences and, quite frankly, jealousy, banned Whitfield from their pulpits. So Whitfield preached in the open air to massive crowds, the size of which had never been seen before and, quite frankly, would never fit in any of the churches anyway. It's interesting to me that Whitfield was a Calvinist, believing that God alone decided salvation, but Whitfield's was not a hardline Calvinism. He would many times end his sermons by saying, "'Come, poor, just, undone sinner, come just as you are to Christ.'" His sermons were not the staid type most had seen or been used to in the past. Once in Philadelphia, it's reported that the gathered crowd of thousands cheered and yelled for Whitfield, much like a sporting event, as he stood on a hill outside the central part of the city. According to witnesses, this sermon of Whitfield's, like many of his, was a somewhat interactive and lively affair. Father Abraham, who have you seen in heaven? Whitfield cried out. Any Episcopalians? No, the people roared in reply. Any Presbyterians, Whitfield asked. No, replied the crowd. Any independents or seceders, new sides or old sides, any Methodists? No, 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 the crowd shouted in reply. He called out, Whom have you seen there then, Father Abraham? To which Father Abraham replied, We don't know those names here. All who are here are Christians, believers in Christ, men who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. God help me, God help us all, 
to forget having names and to become Christians in deed and in truth. While he was criticized for being too enthusiastic, Whitfield preached a very egalitarian gospel. There was no hierarchy in Christianity. Every person who believed in Christ, regardless whether that person was an Anglican or Congregationalist or Baptist, could and would be saved. Now, one of Whitfield's most enthusiastic supporters became a Philadelphia printer, a man by the name of Benjamin Franklin, who was still in his 30s when Whitfield came to the colonies. Franklin had heard of Whitfield's supposed ability to preach to tens of thousands in the open air, but he doubted the truth of both the size of the crowds and of Whitfield's ability to project his voice far enough for people hundreds of yards away to actually hear Whitfield. So when Whitfield came to Philadelphia, Franklin came to listen and recounted the incident in his autobiography. Whitfield had a loud and clear voice and articulated his words and sentences so perfectly that he might be heard and understood at a great distance, especially as his auditories, however numerous, observed the most exact silence. He preached one evening from the top of the courthouse steps, which are on the middle of Market Street, and on the west side of 2nd Street, which crosses at right angles. Both streets were filled with his hearers to a considerable distance. Being among the hindmost in Market Street, I had the curiosity to learn how far he could be heard by retiring backwards down the street towards the river. And I found his voice distinct till I came near Front Street, when some noise in that street obscured it. Imagining then a semicircle, of which my distance would be the radius, and that it were filled with auditors, to each of whom I allowed two square feet, I computed that he might be well heard by more than 30,000. This reconciled me to me the newspaper accounts of his having preached to 25,000 people in the fields, and to the attendant histories of generals haranguing whole armies, of which I had sometimes doubted. Franklin would also write of another incident when he heard Whitfield preach. I happened soon after to attend one of his sermons, in the course of which I perceived he intended to finish with a collection, and I silently resolved he should get nothing from me. I had in my pocket a handful of copper money, three or four silver dollars, and five pistols in gold. As he proceeded, I began to soften, and concluded to give the coppers. Another stroke of his oratory made me ashamed of that, and I determined me to give the silver, and he finished so admirably that I emptied my pocket wholly into the collector's dish, gold and all. Franklin and Whitfield would become good friends, with Whitfield even lodging in the home of Franklin on at least one of his visits to Philadelphia. Of course, Franklin never would adhere to Whitfield's theology, but he admired Whitfield for exhorting people to worship God through good works. He became such an ardent believer in Whitfield's work that he printed Whitfield's sermons on the front page of his gazette, devoting 45 issues to Whitfield's activities, using the power of his press to spread Whitfield's fame by publishing all of Whitfield's sermons and journals. In fact, half of Franklin's publications between 1739 and 1741 were of Whitfield. And though Franklin never would accept the truth of Whitfield's words concerning Christ, ironically, Franklin's printing of Whitfield's works helped to significantly promote the evangelical movement in America. But if there was an impact Whitfield did make on Franklin, it was the idea of egalitarian democracy that Whitfield advocated in his preaching. By claiming liberty of conscience to an inalienable right of ev- to be an inalienable right of every rational creature, Whitfield sparked in Franklin the idea that Whitfield's ideas had implications in the political realm. Now, I would be remiss in not mentioning one of the other major figures of the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. His sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, 
is considered a classic in American literature and is really the only sermon from the Great Awakening that most would have any familiarity with today. The sermon is considered one of fire and brimstone, but it really did lay out the Christian belief, particularly that of the Calvinist theology, that all humanity are sinners in the hands of a God separated only from eternity by what Edwards equated to a spider's thread. While Edwards' work did not have as much of the implications for changing American political thinking as Whitfield's did, he and Whitfield did work together. In fact, Whitfield preached at Edwards' church in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1740. Whitfield's sermon so deeply touched Edwards that he wept throughout the entire service. Shortly after Whitfield's sermons, Edwards preached his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in Enfield, Connecticut in 1741. But what Edwards and Whitfield and many of the other preachers of the Great Awakening did was challenge the established churches, primarily the Anglican Church, but even the Congregationalists and other established churches in America at the time. The Great Awakening taught people to no longer be deferential to previous power structures, but instead to challenge the status quo and what had been considered normal before. People would in fact be taught that it was normal and right to challenge authority. Before the Great Awakening, the chain of authority had long been established as being from God to King, or the Church of England since the King was the head of the Church, to the people. But after the Awakening, it was now God to the people to the King and the Church. Because if the people were answering to God, not the king, then people were responsible to God first and the king second. Another way to consider the awakening is to look at it as another iteration or even a continuation of the Reformation, where there was no longer an intermediary of a church or a priest between God and man. Man stood before God and was responsible and accountable to him first. It's not hard to see how such thinking influenced many of the founders into realizing that man is created with certain rights, but with those rights come responsibilities. And since man must ultimately answer to God for what he has done with those rights, it is just, even good, to disobey any earthly power that prevents one from exercising those rights of life, liberty, and happiness as God intended. Bernard Balin writes in The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution that Puritanism, and the epidemic of evangelism of the mid-18th century had created challenges to the traditional notions of social stratification by preaching that the Bible taught all men are equal, and that the true value of a man lies in his moral behavior, not his class, and that all men can be saved. And if all men are equal and on level footing before God, then all men equally have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, Rossiter would write in the Sea Time of the Republic that the men of 1776 believed that the good state would rise on the rock of private and public morality, and that morality was in the case of most men and states the product of religion, and that the earthly mission of religion was to set men free. It was no mere pose when they justified resistance to oppression as obedience to God and as an appeal to heaven. Join me next time as I discuss the Albany Plan of Union and how the seeds of uniting the colonies into a cohesive confederation, even a nation, were in fact planted in the mid-1750s. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoy this podcast on American history, be sure to check out the History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes.